Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is October 18th, 2020, and we've been listening to Super Soldier programs. Um, they have a series on the augmentations, and I already went through the first one, and now we're on the second one, part two. I'm Hope Hodgsek, Managing Editor at Military.com. This is our seventh episode, but also the second half of our two-part series on super soldiers and the rapidly developing field of military bio-enhancements. If episode six left you scared about the terrifying cyborg military future that awaits us, this sequel may offer a small dose of comfort in that there are thoughtful people thinking through the major problems that this future presents and how we might solve them. Last episode, which you can find at Left of Boom, wherever you get your podcasts, we talked about the technology itself, from smart body suits with implants to bionic eyes and cyborg brain enhancements. Today, we're going to follow that up by diving deep into the new world of ethical concerns that these technologies open up for the military and talk about just how prepared America is to handle warfare that involves not just man-machine teaming, but man-machine hybrids. To guide us through what will no doubt be a mind-bending and at times frightening discussion, we have two of the leading experts in the field. Dr. Edward T. Barrett is the Director of Research at the U.S. Naval Academy Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership and an ethics professor in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law. And Dr. Tony Pfaff is currently the Research Professor for Strategy for the Military Profession Ethic at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. He's also a Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Dr. Barrett and Dr. Pfaff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Barrett, to set the table here, let's talk a little bit about what you might expect to see in the near future. Which of the sort of invasive bioenhancements, things that are more involved than just neurostimulation or performance enhancers, would you expect to emerge in common use the earliest? And what time frame do you believe we're talking about when we discuss how bioenhancements could change the way that we fight? Okay, well, I have uh, I was recently on a panel discussing these issues with somebody who had worked at DARPA, and uh, it's not quite clear uh, when these technologies are going to be uh, ready for use in the military or anywhere else. So I, I can't answer that question, and I think probably it'd be very difficult to, to answer without a security clearance. I can say that the, uh, you know, the ends uh, and the means re- remain the same. For a long time, there's been a desire to enhance soldiers and and, and everybody else, for that matter, physically uh, and emotionally, and especially cognitively. And then there are the longevity enhancement possibilities, too. And we can even talk about ethical enhancements uh, a little bit later as a possibility. But those are the ends. And then as far as the means go, you have devices like exoskeletons and implants. Implants are often um, directed toward the brain and therefore cognitive and and sensory enhancements. And then you have just the old standards of of drugs and uh, and genetic enhancements. So the ends and the means remain the same. And uh, I'm not sure about the timing, to tell you the truth. Maybe Tony has a little bit more insight about that. Dr. Pfaff, do you have any thoughts? I don't know necessarily about the timing of particular technologies. If you re- review the literature, there are a number of these things that have been ongoing, have been, you know, their development has been ongoing for several years. Yeah, and in some cases, they're fairly advanced. I mean, certainly uh, exoskeletons and other things, there's the rudimentary forms of those already, you know, 
out there, what's the, you know, what it's going to take to actually get fielded. Is, yeah, I don't, I don't follow that part very closely. But I would also argue, kind of, or, or, or agree with Ed, depending on what you want to call an enhancement, uh, which is something we're talking about. Uh, you know, we've, we've had they're out, they've been out. We use amphetamines uh, for for endurance, and that's been going on a long time. In World War One, the Brits, uh, the British, uh, mixed rum and cocaine to kind of get the troops motivated to go over the top. Oh my goodness! Uh, my favorite World War Two, you know, enhancement story is uh, the Germans. You know, before the invasion of France, you know, they had this doctrinal innovation called Blitzkrieg, where they grouped the armor together to take advantage of its speed, and they needed for the invasion to be successful to get to Sedan in three days but even with the faster answers and motorized vehicles it would still take five days the german medical corps uh the chief of medical officer came up with this idea they've been prescribing pervitin which is a kind of crystal meth uh it was kind of commercially available in germany as a pick-me-up but they made it pure and uh gave it to troops in poland it kind of worked out and so they distributed 25 million tablets to the soldiers invading France. They crashed the Ardennes in three days. Staff cars got uh, uh, got out ahead of the uh, actual armored units. There's one great story of Rommel running around ahead of enemy, uh, you know, behind enemy lines in a staff car, just with everybody, you know, amped up. And the French saw the staff car and thought, oh my gosh, you know, they've crashed through our lines. We better retreat and reconsolidate. And so French units were retreating when they didn't really have to, even before they had fully engaged uh, German forces. The the doctrinal innovation of Blitzkrieg is, you know, it was certainly a a key to that, but it would not have happened. Probably not been as successful. History might have turned out a little differently had it not been for the use of that kind of enhancement. So it's been going on a long time. In terms of some of the other more advanced technologies, in terms of, uh, you know, chips and brains, and those kind of interventions, yeah, it's, uh, that's probably way off before we figured out how to really integrate it in a practical way. That's really good insight that this is really a continuation of something that's been going on for decades, and I had no idea about that story, which is just amazing. So dialing in this this conversation, I guess, uh, Dr. Feth, let's stay with you for a second. Speaking specifically of domestic concerns and issues within the U.S. military, what are the most pressing, most immediate ethical questions that come to mind that you believe we need to answer as these technologies mature and emerge, particularly the ones that are more invasive, more kind of along the lines of what people call the the cyborg soldier. Yeah, well, I mean, you may have to clarify a little bit what you mean by domestic concerns. Um, But for instance, one might be, uh, let's say we enhance veterans and soldiers in a way that gives them greater memory, faster cognitive speeds, uh, greater cognitive capacity, and they get out of the army more than wherever they they leave the service. What, you know, how does that affect society? You know, if they're more competitive for certain jobs, then civilians are going to be displaced from those jobs. That will be disrupted. On the flip side, what if those enhancements have long-term negative effects? Who's paying for that veteran's care? Well, presumably the Veterans Administration, but that's a, a significant cost that can be disruptive and that society would also have to bear. Dr. Barrett, do you have any additional thoughts on biggest issues? Some of the big, big worries involve uh, not really the invasiveness per se, um, but just the effects um, of these enhancements on soldiers and um, others in, in, uh, in society. The, the concerns revolve around both the type of enhancement and also the degree of enhancement. So on the type of enhancement, consider the possibility that uh, you could make soldiers extremely fearless and aggressive. That sounds on its face uh, fairly good. And I would call those psychological enhancements. But you could run into some real problems in those situations. You, you'd be compromising, I think, the, 
the freedom and the safety of the soldier. And then you're going to also expose uh, the mission and citizens to undue risk. So that's a concern uh, involved with uh, the type of enhancement. And then a lot of the other discussions have to do with the, the degree of enhancement. So you have these so-called extreme enhancements that could affect the soldier and also others. On the side of the soldier, there are a couple different arguments out there about how um, extreme improvements, say, to intelligence, uh, cognitive capacities might harm soldiers. Uh, I think the one that uh, really resonates with me was offered, as I recall, by Michael Sandel, political philosopher at Harvard. And his basic point is that limits, the argument goes, are beneficial for the individual. They promote inter interdependence and humility. And those are constitutive of human flourishing. And when you take away those limits, you might end up with people, soldiers, who are extremely narcissistic and uh, self-centered, superior in their attitude, and that in itself is not fulfilling for that person. So that's, um, that's one issue. You could argue that because soldiers are so necessary for survival, and because we have an all-volunteer all force, then you know, they're consenting to this harm, but nevertheless, you might want to uh, consider whether it would be worth it uh, in all situations. So that, that's a degree-related harm to soldiers. And then I can say more about the way societies would be affected a little bit later. I'm interested in, you bring up the way that soldiers might morally uh, or, you know, be affected pertaining to their character. How might you sort of fence in that, you know, if you, you are the U.S. military and you're concerned about these things? Or how might you prepare soldiers for that eventuality that they might get technology that, that makes them behave differently and, and fundamentally alters their, their character or their outlook on the world? Um, well, just really briefly, I'll let Tony jump in too. The, um, I mean, one possibility is that you could uh, create these drugs so that they're reversible. Um, so you could take away that, um, that cognitive enhancement uh, that is making them somewhat superior and narcissistic. But th there might be psychological issues associated with the reversal issues. So those might out outweigh the possibility of uh, uh, reversing them. And then you could just give them uh, to the soldiers only when they're going operational, say. So they wouldn't be like this all the time. But then there's a risk there, too, because they haven't been trained um, in that state. And that could create some unintended bad consequences. Um, those are just a couple of things that come to mind that you could do to fence in this, this problem for the individual, but there are costs associated with those too. Yeah, I think what I'd chime in with, uh, I'd add just two points. One of the things that I think is important from the beginning of when you're developing these technologies to take this into account now. Before you start fielding the drug, you know, the, the enhancement, whatever it is, if you think it's going to affect the character, have those interventions ready, whatever they might be. And if you can't develop those interventions, you may have to rethink whether or not you want to field it or utilize it or not. And we can talk about you know what you might consider when you're doing that. But also just want to echo um, Ed's point on reversibility and the possible after effects. I, some of the uh, scientists I've talked to like to point out that no enhancement is reversible because you remember what it was like to have that capability. Right. And so that can bring on its own kind of uh, pain or discomfort or uh, uh, psychological pain or discomfort on its own. So that's that's something you also have to consider because a lot of folks will say, well, we're developing it so it'll be reversible. And that takes away the ethical concern, but it doesn't it may minimize it or mitigate it, but it, it certainly doesn't take it away. Right. So you talk about 
working ahead ethically on some of these issues before these sort of enhancements are really mainstream. And I'm struggling to sort of think of an analogous situation in which the U.S. military was fully able to anticipate the ethical and philosophical question that came with the introduction of a game-changing new technology. I'm thinking about how deeply immersed we're becoming in unmanned and drone warfare and the many gray areas that exist around kill decisions, who we target and how, who's in the room when these decisions are made. So how do military ethicists help get ahead of the conversation in a meaningful way? Well, I mean, with a, we, the military has become, I think, pretty wise in that it creates positions like mine and like Tony's. So there are within the system, especially at the staff and war colleges, but I'm in an academy. There are people with military experience, too. That, that do try to do a lot of this thinking in advance. So we keep track of the ways war is going to be waged and on war, and then uh, think through the ethical issues associated with those new situations. And there are a lot of conferences that go on uh, every year on these issues uh, with the relevant players. And we try to reach out to not just other academics, but, but uh, operators, people who work in industry and think tanks and governments. So there's, this conversation is, is fairly uh, robust, at least in the United States. And I've actually gotten a lot of feedback from Europeans and Asians that say, um, this conversation in the U.S. military is really unique. The U.S. military basically says whatever they think. They, they're not, not restricted at all in posing these possibilities and debating them. So it's a very lively uh, um, situation that's been created, and I think it's, it's very healthy. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Hope Hodge Sec, interrupting my own podcast to make sure that you're signed up for Military.com's free newsletters. We just launched a new one, At Ease, all about military entertainment news. You can also sign up for active duty and veteran newsletters with insider information specific to your service, as well as ones focused on crucial topics like finance, jobs, and pay. Go to military.com and select Login in the upper right-hand corner to register for free and get started. All right, back to the show. The decision makers, you know, the people with brass on their shoulders or the people developing these technologies, do they generally listen? I mean, are they willing to, to countenance the should we do this and not just the can we do this? You want me to say that or you? No, go ahead, Tony. The smart ones do. <laughs> <laughs> the smart ones do. The, uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, I think if you look at, you know, AI development, I think we should, we actually get pretty, should get pretty high marks for that. The Defense Innovation Board and the Joint Staff and others have set up, you know, specific organizations to look specific at the ethics of AI as this technology is coming online. And if you review those documents, they're pretty good. Uh, you know, nothing's ever going to be perfect and you're always going to have new facts will come up and you and new considerations. But I think there, I mean, so I, I think there's hope. I'd also underscore when it, when it comes to bioenhancements, it may not be as hard as we think it is because mm. you may not catch everything, but uh, you can catch some things. So, you know, go back to the story of uh, the nerve agent antidote or vaccine that they gave us in the Persian Gulf War, which I was a recipient. Mm. Uh, as I was doing research for my work on this, I learned that they, they basically overrode uh, the guidelines on giving it to soldiers without their consent. Uh, because of the exigencies of that particular situation. The idea being that, well, we really can't get everybody's consent. Uh, and if they really knew it was good for them, they'd rather be inoculated against the nerve agent than not. But what you learn is that, uh, and we just don't have time to test it. But then you learn that they had been stockpiling the drug 
for that use for over for six years previously and didn't conduct any tests in the interim. So that's why if you're thinking about this use, start the test, consider the ethical issues, consider those implications early on, and you'll get, you know, you'll get a better result. Like I said, I think with AI, you're seeing, you're seeing some of that thinking take hold, which Ed Barrett gets complete credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a conference every year at the Naval Academy called the McCain Conference, and, and it's on a different topic like this every year, and, and Tony is, comes every year and usually speaks, so... Uh, so there's a very there's a very robust group in the United States, and we pull in people from Europe and Asia and, and other places. So it's it's ongoing. I'd say it's really developed uh, over the last what maybe 20 years, Tony. Yeah, I mean it was deliberate. I mean, so you started off with a conference of basically philosophers and other interested folks associated with the military academies, all formed a group that you know wanted to focus on ethical issues, and that just broadened into that particular group that you know Ed's a part of. You know, has branches all over the world, and uh, so yeah, no, I think you, it, the military, the, the military certainly does, I think, take into account or the, the ethical issues. But you're right to point out that sometimes necessity gets the better of us. Uh, and depending on how we interpret the urgency of the situation, we can get ahead of ourselves. And that's, again, why I go back to, you know, start early, you know, do ethics early and often. And that's the thing to watch out for. Uh, the other thing to watch out for is as you're, is where that urgency is coming from. Are the bad guys developing one, too? What happens if they get it and we don't, you know? And I think that's part of the ethical consideration. If you're developing it for its own sake, just to have an advantage, you got to at least think twice about fielding it, maybe even think three times about doing it in the first place. It changes when it's to offset or to prevent being at a disadvantage. But you kind of that's one of the ways you start to have to think about these kinds of technologies before you even start developing them, and certainly before you start fielding Well, you're anticipating my line of questioning there, but before we, we get into that aspect of things, Dr. Faf, I think you brought this up, so I want to pull on this thread a little bit more. How do you anticipate free will will come into the equation? So, you know, right now you can't choose whether or not to carry an M4 rifle or your M203 grenade launcher. If you're a grenadier, basically you carry what's issued to you. Should troops have the choice of whether or not to get bio-enhanced, whether it's uh, chemically or an implant, anything like that, how would you expect that conversation as well to affect the military socially? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And it kind of, the answer kind of goes something like this. Now, again, be specific about what we're talking in terms of enhancements. You know, a powered suit that really doesn't, you know, that has no medical implications or it doesn't involve a medical intervention or boots that have springs on them to enhance, you know, running and dumping. I don't see those as, as terribly ethically problematic. What's new about or what, what makes enhancements concerning is when you have some kind of medical intervention into the body that changes the body somehow. And so what you do when you, when, when you do that with a soldier, you go, you're basically saying, okay, here's a trade. I can give you this enhancement for which there may be long-term side effects, but it will prevent your uh, near-term demise or a serious injury in combat. Uh, what does the soldier say? Well, you've kind of put the soldier, you're giving the soldier an offer uh, he or she cannot refuse. I mean, the only rational thing is to take the enhancement uh, almost regardless of what the long-term effects might be, depending on what the probabilities of each outcome are. So like with the uh, nerve agent you know, vaccine, while there are side effects, you know, it was very low in the population, so I might consent to take that risk. But all things being equal, you can place uh, soldiers in a kind of coercive uh, situation, uh, which I think you have to watch out for. One way of handling it is, well, if someone doesn't take the enhancement, well, they don't get exposed to the same risk. But even that's an imperfect solution for obvious reasons. A, that may not really be an option like the nerve agent antidote. But the other thing is even if that were an option, there's a second order effect in terms of risk and fairness to the enhanced soldier. 
because while that enhancement may make them more resilient and more survivable and more lethal on the battlefield, it also makes it more likely they'll be used. And depending on how many iterations of that there might be, getting the enhancement might, over long term, make them less survivable or more, or more likely to be severely injured. And so that's the kinds of things you have to take into account when you're constructing a policy about how to distribute these things. Dr. Barrett, do you have any thoughts to add on that one? No, that was that was really interesting. Uh, there, there, there would be these, let's call them external pressures to enhance. I think to, to those then you could also add, I'll just call them internal pressures. In certain groups, people who are extremely young are much more open to taking risks. And therefore, um, you, you have to wonder how much informed consent uh, they're, they're giving. Um, it's just kind of natural that they would say, yes, this sounds cool. This sounds enhancing and I'm going to take it without considering like somebody who's a little bit older who's seen that, that bad things can happen might take. I just want to note too that there are, there are cultural differences. I teach military ethics uh, over in France occasionally and we discuss human enhancement. Uh, this is with the French army and the French soldiers are very um, close to this. They do, they do not want to be enhanced. Um, on the other hand, the American youth that I've talked to, the, uh, the midshipmen, for example, they want the enhancements. <laughs> so there are cultural differences, too. And I don't know exactly how to explain them. <laughs> well, that's a great segue. And I think we'll stick with you, Dr. Barrett, for a second. So to talk about the international consequences of bioenhancement, we had sort of a sidebar about this a couple of weeks ago. First of all, with our allies, what happens if we have troops that have brain implants or other physical enhancements? We're interoperating with other nations' troops that don't have access to those kind of technologies. So what are your predictions about the way that this will affect those crucial relationships? Yeah, good. Good question. And relationships not uh, with just um, your, your allies, but, but also with your own citizens and citizens of other countries. So, so far, uh, my, my focus was before on uh, the harm that would be, um, that, that would exist in soldiers. But that harm, that superiority sense, would have, I think, potentially a very uh, deep and potentially broad social effect. So imagine that you are 10 times as intelligent overnight as, as any other human being. How would you look at your, your lessers? So you would see them as having lower capacities. And given our association, especially of cognitive capacities with value, human value, human dignity, which is said to be the foundation of human rights, you might see them as beings that are human but have fewer rights. Uh, and therefore, you get the possibility that the military, um, if enhanced, would look upon civilians as lessers, and therefore you get the superiority and dominance of the military. So this would cause serious civil-military problems, and therefore you'd want to uh, solve this problem by distributing them more widely. Let, let's let the market distribute these enhancements, but then you get the uh, superiority and dominance of the military and then the rich citizens who can afford these enhancements. So then that's not a good situation. So you want to promote the um, enhancements throughout your society and therefore um, you, you equalize the situation, but then you get the superiority and dominance of the rich states' militaries. So you see where I'm going with this. You create problems that are potentially global. Um, if you start down this path and, you know, vis-a-vis -vis then other militaries, um, you would look at your allies who are unenhanced potentially as, as lesser, and they would be lesser. They wouldn't have less value, but you might see them as having less value, and that could cause problems within these, these alliances and, and their operations. 
This is something that uh, was really well described by a philosopher uh, named Alan Buchanan in an article that he wrote, I think it was in 2009. I think it's, it's very important to remember how this uh, might affect the enhanced psychologically and the global implications of this, especially between the rich, uh, richer and the poorer countries. Well, and it sounds like there are multiple possible solutions to this problem, but there's not one that's like the, the perfect fit. I don't know. I could, I could go on. Do you want to jump in, Tony? Uh, interoperability is kind of always a problem for us. I mean, NATO still doesn't get it right. They've been at it for, you know, a few weeks now. Um, and uh, uh, and there's ways of compensating for that in terms of role differentiating. We've got this capability. They go do that thing where they're more effective. Uh, you can also do geographic spacing and you know, give people different roles and, and put them in different places. But what Ed said was, I think, really important because you can get around those kinds of interoperability issues. But when, but I think the concern arises with if your partner views your implementation of these enhancements as unethical, you lose a lot of legitimacy, and that you can't. That's very hard to recover. It, it affects how they regard us and regard that individual soldier. If I'm taking pain suppressing or fear suppressing drugs. No one's going to think of me as all that courageous. I'm just the guy on the fear-suppressing drugs. And being thought of courageous is part of the soldier identity. And so at some point, we become so enhanced that we're not soldiers the same way that those partners are soldiers. And then you're going to see the kinds of things that's talking about that are going to creep in, that it just generate a lot of friction and make uh, cooperation really difficult. And, and like you said, that's going to spill over into the, you know, into the civil-military relationships because if my enhancements are taking away my fear or reasons for fear, then it's also taking away my the, the exhibition of courage. And that's probably inevitable if we go down this route, but it is going to cause a lot of adjustments in the way that we work with uh, and the way our, our own society regards us, other societies regard us, and the way our partners regard us. So, so that's our friends. And on the other side, we've got uh, technology-hungry global competitors who may be just as eager to acquire cyborg soldier tech and much less worried about the ethical considerations and concerns that we're talking about now. Could we end up in a bioenhancement arms race when it comes to our competitors? And, and how can we establish meaningful guardrails on human military enhancement in light of the global environment we find ourselves in? Aren't we already in a biomedical enhancement arms race? <laughs> I mean, ideally, as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, given the, the dystopian future that I laid out globally as a possibility, I think a global ban would be nice, but that's just not going to happen because of what you just mentioned. Um, adversary states are developing these things, and, and therefore we're probably going to have to, because of that external pressure, do the same. And so then how do you do the best with that situation? I mean, one thing I've considered is um, the possibility of developing these things and then regulating by giving them just to special forces units that probably need them more. Um, they tend to be older and therefore their consent is very well informed. And then this would avoid the military dominance problem because only a small portion of the military would be enhanced in this radical way. But I think that would be very, very difficult. Um, other states are not going to just enhance their soft units. And, you know, within our military, you know, there, there are other reasons to give other components of it, these enhancements. So I think the cat will be out of the bag and, and the entire military will, will be um, wanting these enhancements. And then you just kind of get pushed down the path that I, that I built with the, the civilians wanting them and then the civilians eventually all getting them, but then having this uh, 
rich state, poor state uh, distinction that's even more radical than it is now um, economic and in other ways. So this is a really deep problem. And it's, I think, um, important for the military to think about because much of the, the push for developing this technology is coming from the military. So I think we have a duty to, to take a look at the possible problems. and. How to manage those, though, that's I'm, I'm kind of at an end, except to say that I mentioned earlier ethical enhancements. So maybe we could solve this uh, this problem of superiority by an ethical enhancer. But then you get into, you know, obviously agency issues. You know, are you being are you taking away the freedom of a person to do the right thing, which is very important to human development. So I don't have an answer to your question. And, and I worry about this. And a lot of the attention has been going to, and, and rightly, artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous weapon systems and uh, cyber war. And that's it's all great. But I think the human enhancement technology deserves a little bit more attention. Well, I did want to ask that question. Years ago, we had a Secretary of the Navy who said, you know, the F-35 is the last manned platform. You know, we've got people operating RPAs out of Nevada that are shooting people, you know, in countries very far away. It seems like the operator on the battlefield is, is almost becoming a species going extinct. So are these, are these issues still relevant and pressing as there are fewer and fewer humans on the future battlefield as we see it? So if you're talking about remote technology, certainly enhancements you know, can apply to that because some of these enhancements are to enable, you know, basically controlling remote devices uh, with your mind and uh, with your brain. And um, I mean, certainly that's the natural progression of, uh, of military technology over time. It's always been about inflicting the most amount, you know, it's, it's about lethality and, you know, and survivability. And they're related because the more lethal you are, probably the more likely you're going to survive. So certainly we can see it's heading that way. And a big concern, which you already see, is then what you'll have is, because they'll always have to, for the near future at least, I'm guessing, we're going to have to have somebody uh, on the ground uh, with the machines, even in the Air Force. The automated technology they're talking about is that there is a manned fighter that controls a number of unmanned fighters. Um, so you're probably not going to remove the human, but you're right. Now, all of a sudden, I've got this big giant military. I've got this military. Most of the actual people are nowhere near the actual harm. So within the military, we've already talked about what that might mean from the civil military perspective. But now let's look at it from the uh, military, you know, from the internal to the military perspective. So then you just have a group of risk takers uh, that get smaller and smaller over time backed up by, you know, uh, I'm going to call them a bunch of technocrats, for lack of a bunch of technicians who are skilled at, uh, you know, manning and running and administering these systems, but who don't share the risk. Now, when I took this on in, uh, in the work I've done on disruptive technologies, one of the things I think you can do as the requirement for numbers of humans shrink, you can actually rotate people through different kinds of assignments so that that risk gets distributed. I worked with uh, uh, Special Operations Headquarters in Iraq for a little while, and that was sort of how they did it. You would spend some time in the field, then you'd go back and do support work for you know, a few months, and then you'd come back again and uh, you'd go back. And so the risk was distributed that way. So, um, so that's one way of handling it. And I thought if I've got time, I did want to take up a point on controlling the uh, proliferation of these weapons, particularly when adversaries are developing it. I took up that question directly and specifically what would it, what are the likelihood, what's the possibility of developing the weapons or what's the utility in developing the weapons in order to do, do a ban? And a great paradigm, a great example of when that worked was the St. Petersburg Declaration. 
the Russians had developed in the 1860s, these soft lead bullets that were designed for hit ammunition carriages and splinter the wood. Uh, when the Minister of War realized that using that on people, because uh, it doesn't kill people, it just makes their life, it just really, it wounds them severely and permanently without, it creates pain. You know, they decided this is, we don't want this kind of munition to be used against people. So they had it, and they used the fact that they had it as leverage to have the St. Petersburg Conference or Council that met, included 19 European countries, uh, as well as Iran uh, and others outside of Europe. And they all agreed that that kind of munition uh, would not be developed for use against personnel. So they, they set size and weight limits on it. Uh, and over time, you know, they, it took a lot of hard work. But they used that as leverage along with efforts to get other people to sign onto the ban. And eventually, you know, we do pretty much have a norm in international law against using those kinds of weapons uh, or munitions still to this day. So you can do it, but you can't use, oh, I'm doing it to ban it as an excuse. It has to be accompanied by a real, honest, sincere uh, effort uh, to get other people to sign on to uh, any, uh, whatever kind of counterproliferation protocol would be effective. So my final question is a bit of a bonus question. It won't be on the test, but there's a term coined by the military futurist August Cole that I really love, thickent or fiction intelligence. And so I had to ask to, to both of you, and we'll start with Dr. Barrett, is there a particular book or movie, a work of fiction that best represents where you think we'll be in the future or where we are right now as we grapple with these technological enhancements? Yeah, there's been a lot of literature obviously in the past and movies recently there was a movie it was called was it limitless wasn't it yes um, recently and i i saw that in an airplane you know how airplane movies are you you remember about half of it you know because you're you're, <laughs> you're not getting enough oxygen but i wanted to watch that again because it did seem like it uh, encapsulated a lot of the ethical issues associated with you know being enhanced cognitively as tony mentioned you know that the way that uh you would be harmed if you um, weren't able to get these drugs and then what your attitude would be like when you were enhanced and the social ramifications of that. So I think Limitless would be a good thing. I want to watch that one again. I'd recommend it because it looked, it looked really smart. Mm. It stars Bradley Cooper. It's a good one. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, Dr. Faf, do you have... I'm going to come up with an answer in about six hours, <laughs> uh, three o'clock this morning, and I'll call you. Um, uh, actually, when you said that, my initial response was, "Oh yeah, Braveheart," because if you know, if all this technology works, to, you know, it ends up canceling each other out at some point, where, or or if the, or if we really do escalate into a you know a global conflict driven by you know we're talking about the future, you know, climate change. Uh, pandemics and other things, you know, if we uh, can really get to that Mad Max, that might be another better one, environment, then we can go back and throwing rocks at each other. But uh, I thought about it, you know, I'm not too far, I'll think of a better future movie in a minute, but I think what you're going to see, the thing about Braveheart that struck me was, you know, that was a time when, you know, soldiers could fight soldiers, and the fighting was isolated from the civilian, you know, uh, from the civilian population. And so, Orson Scott Card, I know he wrote Ender's Game, not sure we're there yet, but he also wrote a very interesting fiction story about a future battle between Earth and Mars, and it was entirely automated, uh, and the battle was going on, you know, in space, and Earth and Mars were just wasting robots right and left, and uh, what broke the stalemate was the Martians found a human, <laughs> uh, decided to inject one of the, uh, a human mind into that, into the conflict, which 
behaved unpredictably uh, and uh, ended up winning the day because the machines on the other side couldn't handle all the calculations associated with trying to keep up with the humans. I, I think we're going to see more precision, particularly if you're talking in space. Uh, we can talk about space force, but um, the fighting is going to be done. It's not going. It's going to be done by. Uh, it's going to be done by robots and not plumbers. Uh, if you've seen the show, so that's in terms of the harms and the killing. But in terms of the disruption, it could get quite severe because it's going to. The, the political effects will be uh, uh, are, are probably more dramatic, spread out over time and space. Indeed. I'm going to come up with a really good answer later. <laughs> I'll mention one more. Maybe Joan, you'll think of it. So this goes way back. Obviously, is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. So, oh, yeah. so she's operating out of the Romantic tradition, which is a reaction against the, the Enlightenment and, and the, you know this this uh, um, in many ways good uh, desire to control nature. But but the, the ramifications of that can sometimes be uh, problematic. So I, I read we read that. Uh, Oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I thought it was uh, it had some things to offer to on this on this issue. Well, I personally am relieved to know that there are people like like you who are working through these questions. Uh, this is the second in a two part series on sort of super soldiers, and the last mm-hmm. set of interviews left me very frightened, and I'm somewhat <laughs> comforted. <laughs> so, thank you so much for for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. Enjoy being here. Yeah, enjoyed it. Okay, so more things to be uncomfortable about, I think. Um, Not exactly something that I would want my son to have to go through. Let's just put it that way. So I hope you got something from it. Thank you for listening.